tonight. And frankly, I'm thankful for all of you that, uh, that took the time. I'm a busy parent myself, and uh, I bring greetings from my wife of 27 years and our eight children. We have a twin 21-year-olds, Gunner and Georgia. Fisher is 19, Eden's 18, Peyton is 16, Spencer's 13, Will is 12, and Brewer is 12. So you can pray for me anytime you want to. <coughs> we, um, Eden and Peyton are from Taiwan. Willa and Brewer are from China. And Spencer is from the Washington, D.C. area. So every morning at our breakfast table, we have an opportunity for an international incident to occur. In November of 2004, my wife and I got on a plane to go to Taipei, Taiwan to pick up Eden and Peyton. They were five and a half and three and a half at the time. And so we landed in Taipei, spent the night, got the girls on a Monday morning, spent the day with them, went to bed that night. And about 11 o'clock at night, I felt myself being shaken out of bed. I was sleeping on a cot. The girls were sleeping in bed with Dana. And I thought it was my wife nudging the bed to tell me to quit snoring or something like that. And when I woke up, I realized not only was my bed shaking, but the whole building was shaking and swaying back and forth. And at that time in our marriage, we had been in a hurricane, a flood, and a tornado. And that night, we were in an earthquake. So my wife woke up and she said, Randy, what is it? I said, it's an earthquake. And she said, how do you know? And I'm thinking, are we going to get in an argument about this? I mean, <laughs> we're about to meet Jesus and our last words to each other are going to be, how do you know? So, I mean, what I wanted to say was, first of all, I don't think we're being bombed. And second of all, Godzilla lives in Tokyo. I mean, what else could this be? We are in an earthquake, my friend. Now, the strangest thing, I grew up in Florida, so I don't know anything about earthquakes. I know a lot about hurricanes. I don't know anything about, <clears throat> about earthquakes. And the craziest thing for me was standing there in the street, busy street, thousands of people in the streets of Taipei, and the aftershocks would occur. And I don't know. I do watch television. I'm pretty sure that the ground shaking beneath your feet, an aftershock of, a, of an earthquake, you're supposed to at least stop. And I think you're supposed to look up and see if something's going to fall on your head. But that's not what the people of Taipei do. The ground shaking beneath your feet is supposed to be a bone-jarring experience. It is not normal. However, what I discovered is the people, the natives of Taipei, it's become normalized. Apparently, you can get used to something as bone-jarring as the ground shaking beneath your feet. Something I don't think you're actually supposed to get used to, but apparently you actually can get used to it. And what I've discovered in the Christian life, as we live in this world, <clears throat> it's very easy to get accustomed to things you're just not supposed to get accustomed to as a believer. And that's why I think it's good and right for us to pull ourselves together on occasion, like we're doing tonight, and ask ourselves on various issues of the Christian life, are we getting used to things that we shouldn't be getting used to? And tonight, we're going to ask ourselves this weekend, are we getting used to some things in the area of parenting that we shouldn't be getting used to? Are we just em embracing some, some cultural things that have crept into our parenting, or are we really going to 
do this according to the Bible. My assignment tonight is spiritual leadership and financial leadership. And I'm going to put it all in the category of stewardship. Parenting is a stewardship. Financial leadership is a stewardship. You've been given a responsibility. I'm guessing all of you in here have kids. I don't know why you would be here if you don't. All right? So, you've got kids. God has given you a responsibility. It's a stewardship. Just like everything else God gives us. And so tonight, we'll talk about spiritual leadership as a stewardship. We'll talk about financial leadership as a stewardship. And the first thing that I want to point out when we talk about parenting is to remind us of the centrality of Scripture. Anytime you're going to do anything about anything, if you're a Christian, you're going to want to know what does the Bible say about it. Years ago, <clears throat> I read a survey, and the survey was from, given to Christian parents. And the question was, where do you get your parenting philosophy from? Well, the number one answer was the way my parents did it. Now, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, I will probably never know. I'm just going to say um, the way that our culture has gone in the last 30 or 40 years, most people are growing up in non-Christian homes or at least Christian homes that claim to be Christian homes that may not be exactly modeling the Christian life. So I don't find that answer, that first answer to be compelling. The second most common answer was we're doing it like our friends are doing it. Well, that probably isn't such a great thing because what do your peers know more than you? Uh, you, you, got, you got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Your friends have a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And frankly, that's just kind of pulling our ignorance together, right? You need somebody who probably knows what they're doing. And people that just have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, I love you. I respect you. But you probably don't know what you're doing. So the third answer, the Bible. The Bible was the third answer. The Bible should be the first answer. But I can tell you why I think the Bible is the third answer for a lot of people. And that is this, a lot of people don't think the Bible has much to say about parenting at all. If you ask the average Christian, what does the Bible say about parenting? If they understand the Bible, they're probably going to say, well, you know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, there's some stuff in there. Then Proverbs, the, writer, the author of Proverbs says, my son, a lot, so he's probably writing to his son, so there's a little father-son stuff going on in there. Then you go to Ephesians, or Colossians 3, fathers don't exasperate your children. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents. That's, that's kind of it. There's, there's some, you know, Proverbs 31 woman, she's got some stuff going on that's pretty good as a mom. But if you understand the Bible, as I do, and I, and I think you should understand the Bible, is God's revelation of himself that tells us who he is, who we are, how we got here, how we got into the mess we're in, how do we get out of the mess we're in in Christ, and then how to live before a holy God. Well, if that is the, the storyline of the Bible, and if that's the storyline of the Bible, then the whole Bible's about parenting, the entire thing. James chapter 4 says, why are there quarrels among you? Because you want something that you don't have. Now, does it say, parents, this is what you do, and this is how you analyze a quarrel with your children? No. But that is a parenting passage to beat all parenting passages. Why are there quarrels among you? Because why are there quarrels among you? You've got a kid who wants something. He, one kid's playing with a toy, another kid wants it. And so he grabs the toy and takes the toy. Now the other kid wants a toy and he has it. So then what do they have? A quarrel. Very simple. 
It's true with adults. Next time uh, you and your spouse are quarrelsome, ask yourself this question. What, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Now, for adults, it's more complicated. Surely, you're not over, uh, arguing over a toy. But you might be wanting something like respect, and you don't feel like you're getting it. You might want something like appreciation, and you're not getting it. You might want something like affection, and you're not getting it. <clears throat> so the Bible tells us all that we need to know. And if you will learn how to bring the Bible to bear on your own life as a practice, and then learn how to bring the Bible to bear on the lives of your children, then the whole Bible is going to be part of your parenting. So the, right off the bat, I just want to affirm the centrality of Scripture in all of this. But then as you look at the storyline of the Bible, you see, well, okay, how, how did we get into this mess we're in? The Bible says God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given uh, this unbelievable garden to live in. There's no sin. They never had an argument. They never had a disagreement. Everything's harmonious. And there's one rule in the garden, and that is don't eat of that tree. And the Bible says Satan came in the form of a serpent, tempted Eve. She ate of the fruit, and it says that she gave it to her husband, who was with her. He's standing right there. And the Bible tells us that sin <clears throat> entered into the world. And God explains now that there's going to be some judgment here, some punishment for that sin. And among the punishments, he says to the woman, I will put enmity between, or says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that is God telling Satan that an offspring of the woman is going to crush his head, bruise his head. That means he's going to kill him. You tell me, hey, after the service tonight, I'm going to crush your head. Basically, you're telling me you're going to kill me. A crushed head means you're dead. So, God is saying to the serpent, the offspring of this woman is going to kill you. You know what this is? Well, <clears throat> in any estimation, it's a declaration of war. It's a declaration of war by God on Satan. Now, God doesn't say exactly when this is going to happen. It's going to happen years, thousands of years later. But is it any wonder that your home is in a spiritual battle right now? Is it any wonder that you feel pressed and tempted and you feel like you're, you're in a spiritual battle? Because Satan has a bullseye on every one of your homes. He hates the home. He hates the family. Through the family is going to come the offspring that is going to kill him. So there's a declaration of war and then before we even start talking about your own spiritual life, you have to realize you are in a battle. <clears throat> when my oldest son, Gunner, who's 21, when he was nine years old, we had a conversation in the car I'll never forget. We were coming home from football practice, and he says, Dad, have you ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? I said, yes, I have. 
He said, was it any good? I said, son, it is the dumbest movie ever made by human hands. I want all my brain cells back from when I watched it. Now, his next question bothered me, not because my kids aren't allowed to ask questions. My next, his next question bothered me because he was nine years old, and up to that point, he had really never questioned me at all. There's this fun thing that happens with nine-year-old boys and their dad. Nine-year-old boys believe, generally speaking, that their dads are the bravest, strongest, greatest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. My dad can beat up your dad was started by a nine-year-old boy. I remember watching professional baseball games with Gunner when he was nine years old, and somebody would hit a home run, and I would marvel at it, and he would say, well, Dad, you could do that, right? Now, this little ego trip only lasts about a year, so the answer is, yes, son, I could do that. I can hit a baseball 480 feet if I wanted to. It doesn't explain why I'm sitting in the living room watching him do it, but sure, I could do it. Watching the World's Strongest Man contest. You've probably seen this at some point in your life. Dad, you could do that, right? Sure. I could strap a refrigerator to my back and do jumping jacks if I wanted to. But it would emasculate all the men in the neighborhood. It would ruin my testimony. So for the sake of the gospel, I'm not going to do it. But <clears throat> I could do it if I wanted to. So that's why his next question bothered me. Because I just said, it's the dumbest movie ever made by human hands. And immediately he said, when can I watch it? So he's doubting me, which is not a sin. I just hadn't experienced this before. And so I asked him a question that shaped my understanding about a parent of a nine-year-old. Because I asked him, I said, Gunnar, are there times in your life when you know there are things that are good out there or you think there are things that are good out there, and I know there are things that are good out there for you that you would love and enjoy, and I just on purpose withhold them from you? He said, yes, sir, I think that all the time. Now listen, if you think that's not spiritual warfare, you're not paying attention. And I got to tell you, I wasn't paying attention because he's only nine. I, everybody kept preparing me for the teenage years where they're just awful and terrible, and they're going to hate you and think you're an idiot and everything else. And then I've got warfare going on right in that car. Do you see the perversion in it? Satan tempting that little boy to look over at me and think that greatest, strongest, bravest man that ever walked the face of the earth, he doesn't really want good things for you. Fast forward a few years, now Gunner's 12. And he's mowing the backyard of my house and I'm standing on the deck of our house presiding over the, my eighth of an acre kingdom. And he's cutting the grass, and I don't like the way he's cutting the grass. Mainly because I just woke up in a bad mood that day. So I don't like the way he's cutting the grass. It looks just as good as when I did it. But I thought he was taking too big of a cut. Not so big that he was leaving uncut grass. It was, it was irrational. So I went down there. I got on to him. You're not doing it right. Do it right. I go back up on my perch, and he does it right. And then he's, very, he's listening to music. He's getting into his, the rhythm, and he's off cutting too big of a cut. I go down there again, and I come back up, and my wife can see something's going on. She's looking out the window, so she comes out on the deck, and she says, what's going on? I said, well, isn't it obvious? Look at how terrible this thing is. I mean, what is happening to this kid? What, I mean, what's he turning into? He won't even listen. 
And she said, well, here's what I see. I see a 12-year-old happily cutting the grass, doing it as well as you would have done it, and you don't have to do it. I said, how about you get right back in the house? No. <laughs> She's right. I didn't tell her to get back in the house. She's right. What is going on? You see, it's the temptation. It's the spiritual warfare of Satan tempting me to turn my heart away from a 12-year-old boy who wasn't doing one thing wrong. Malachi 3 seems to indicate that one of the evidences of the manifest presence of God is that the hearts of fathers will be turned toward their sons and the hearts of sons will be turned toward their fathers. And I don't mind making some application to where I, might, I would be willing to say the hearts of parents toward their children, hearts of children toward their parents. So when we're talking about spiritual leadership in the home, after you understand scripture and the, the reality of the warfare that's going on, the reality that you're in it and sometimes you don't realize you're in it and sometimes it's happening and you just assume it's not. What kind of warfare could a nine-year-old boy be in? Oh, big time. Big time. And I didn't even know. I mean, it's not lust. He's nine. It's not girls. He's nine. It's turning his heart away from me, even at nine, believing that I don't really want good things for him. Well, once you get all that together, then it boils down to before you start parenting, you've got to recognize your own spiritual condition. <clears throat> your own walk with God is central to the parenting process. You're going to be so tempted to be worried about theirs. And you're rightly concerned to be worried about theirs, but not exclusively theirs. And you've got to be worried about yours first. And I'm just telling you, I've been doing this for 21 years it is so easy to be so self-righteous about my own spiritual life because I can find out, I can find all sorts of things wrong with their kids, and it's kind of legit, right? Because I'm given this responsibility, I'm their dad, I'm supposed to correct them, and so I can just nail them every time out of a self-righteous heart. <clears throat> so, your own spiritual condition, you need to be reminded that outside of Christ, the Bible says we're condemned. So Romans 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Outside of Christ, we're condemned. And the Bible is clear Outside of Christ, you're condemned, which means you need a Savior. You need, you need, you're, you're not righteous. You don't bring anything righteous. Your righteousness has to come from somewhere else, and it comes from Christ. So Romans 3.23, very common passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So outside of Christ, you're condemned. You need a Savior. You need the righteousness of Christ. So the Bible says, if you repent of your sin, place your faith in the work that Jesus did, believe that he died on a cross, was dead for three days, rose again, and you're trusting in that provision for the forgiveness of your sin, 
and not in your own righteousness. The Bible calls you a born-again believer. You're saved, the Bible says. And the Bible says that once you're saved, that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. God has given you a helper, the Holy Spirit. So you've got to be aware of your own condition. And if you're outside of Christ, you're going to find this task impossible. Inside of Christ, it is a humbling reminder that you needed the righteousness of another. It's what produces what the Bible calls forbearance. Patience with others in their sins, in their shortcomings. <clears throat> and then we need to examine our own selves, regularly examine our own selves. If you're going to be a good parent and a godly parent, you're going to have to regularly examine your own heart. James tells us that if you don't examine your own heart, you're like somebody who looks in a mirror. And your, your hair is all disheveled. You look like a wreck. And then you just walk away and don't do anything about it as if you were fine. He calls that being a hearer of the word only and not a doer of the word. And so we need to make sure that we're not just hearers of the word, that we're doers of the word. And so we must regularly examine ourselves to see. And then you're going to need to prioritize your relationship with God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you're going to prioritize your relationship with God before anything else. And you're going to do that having times regularly, preferably daily, where you're alone with God, reading the scriptures and praying. You're going to be accountable to others who are going to ask you the hard question. If you don't have anybody asking you hard questions, you're not accountable to anybody. And the Bible says that it's like iron sharpening iron, so one man sharpens another. We need other people in our lives that we've opened ourselves up to and be accountable to them. Otherwise, a life lived without accountability is a life that is veering off course and will veer off course. You need a mentor, a godly mentor. Titus 2 explains to us, older men are to be like fathers to the younger men. Older women are to be like mothers to the younger women. Every semester, I'll have a student, a male student, come to me and say, I'm going to have to take next semester off. Well, why? Everything all right? Oh, well, yeah, we're just getting ready to have our second child, and it's going to be overwhelming. Okay, well, you do realize people have them two at a time, right? <laughs> That's what we did, so uh, you can have them two at a time, three at a time. And I'll always ask, who are you guys hanging out with? Are you guys hanging out with people your age? Well, yeah. Here's what you need to do. Y'all need to hang out with somebody in their 40s, to help you understand this is not overwhelming. This is just new normal. They're going to help you redefine your situation, and you're not going to be commiserating with your friends who are in the same stage. This is awful. This is terrible. I don't know how we're going to make it. No, you need to be around somebody that can tell you, no, you can do this. You're going to be all right. It's a new normal. Make sure you're around people that are way ahead of you in the next stage of life. I've been married 27 years. These next 27 are going to be way different than these last 27. I'm going to have kids that get married. I'm going to have grandkids. My body's going to break in all sorts of ways. It's already starting. My parents are going to die. I don't, I don't speak to them that frankly about it, but they're not going to make it another 27 years. They're 75 years old. And so I'm talking to people 
that are in their 70s right now, helping me prepare for what I should expect these next 27 years. Everybody needs somebody that's a little further down the road to help them understand where they're going and how they're going to get there, and it's okay. And then you need to be locked into a local church, a Bible-believing local church where you are going to hear the Word of God preached. You're going to have other believers that share your same worldview, going in the same direction, encouraging you, correcting you. And then next, you need to be living, and I need to be living, the Christian life authentically in our homes. There are all sorts of horrible statistics, and they're all... They're all over the map, but the, the lump sum of it is it's bad news. That in Christian homes, teenagers grow up in the church, they graduate from high school, and huge percentages of them never feel the need to assemble themselves together with a local church. They leave the church. They leave the faith. And why do they do that? Why do they do that? Here's why I think they do that. Because they have not seen the gospel authentically lived out in the homes that they grew up in. The only differences that many of them see between their home and the non-Christian home down the street is that their home, they got to get up early on Sundays. The other home gets to sleep in late. That's all the difference they see. And so a lot of times parents will blame the church. The church should have done this. The church should have done that. Or our youth pastor was no good. And the discipleship pastor was no good. And we didn't have this. We didn't have that. We didn't have game night. We didn't have all the activities for teen. No. What happened was, is they woke up every Monday and saw their parents doing the same things they were doing last Friday and Saturday. And the gospel in their mind, has had no impact at all on how they shape and order their lives. So we need compelling gospel-centered example. Not perfection. Paul said, follow me in as much as I follow Christ. And what might that look like? Well, I'll tell you this. uh, You need to be able to tell your kids, follow me in as much as I follow Christ. He said, well, I'm not perfect. I know, that's how you model it. You're modeling an imperfect human being. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, as a believer, he said, I do what I don't want to do. I still don't do what I want to do. Who will set me free from this body of death? Because there's a already not yet. You're a believer? That doesn't mean all of your sin is gone. It means you're progressively becoming more and more Christ-like, which means sin is still present. So in my home, I tell our kids, if I say it, you can say it. If I don't say it, you can't say it. Now, that makes me remarkably aware of my speech, believe me. And I should be remarkably aware of my speech. You say, well, I don't want to tell my kids that. Well, I think you should be able to tell your kids that. You may not want to tell them that, but I think you should be able to tell them that. So let me give you something uh, very simple. I don't like calling people stupid. I don't like, I, that's not in the Bible, but I just, I, I, we, we're autonomous a little bit in this. So I don't like calling people stupid. I don't like kids calling each other stupid. And so we just say, we're not going to call people stupid at our house. Now, the problem is, 
every now and then I will be driving and someone will pull out in front of me and there's not any better word in the English language to describe that person. They're stupid. And I say it out loud and behold, I'm never alone when this happens. There's four or five sets of ears in the back seat. Hear it at all. So what do you do then? Well, then you model the apology. Right? You just say, I'm sorry I said that guy was stupid. We agreed we weren't going to call people stupid. Will you guys forgive me for saying that guy was stupid? Yeah, Dad. <clears throat> Part of authentically living the gospel out in your home, frankly, is to acknowledge obvious wrongs in your life and let your kids know that you know it. A lot of people, especially men, I'll just tell you, think that if they apologize to their kids over an obvious wrong, that they, they're going to lose their kids' respect. i got to tell you, it's the opposite. They will lose, you will lose their respect in a heartbeat if they see you not acknowledging obvious wrongs. You speak harshly to your wife. You shouldn't do that, but that's not the end of the world. You say to her, I'm sorry. I spoke harshly to you. Will you forgive me? Because I, you know those kids heard it. And then you go to the kids and you say, I'm sorry. I spoke harshly to your mother. That is not the way a man is supposed to speak to his wife. Will you forgive me? But I will tell you this. <clears throat> At least when I left the house this morning, I have eight children and a wife. And they all love and respect me, at least when I left the house. That could have changed today. Hopefully not by my wife, but any of the kids can have a bad day. And just Dad's no good for the day. And it's not because I'm a perfect dad. I am horrifically imperfect. You don't even want to know. <clears throat> but one of the evidences that the gospel is ruling in your life is when you sin, you confess that sin, and when you wrong another and you sin against someone else, you, you make it right. That is at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness of sin, reconciliation between man and God in Christ through the forgiveness of sin. At the heart of the gospel is forgiveness of sin, which means at the heart of your home should be the asking and granting of forgiveness. It's part of the authenticity of living out the gospel in a, in a close-knit community. Husband and wife get married, they double the sin quotient, just like that. Double. You add a couple of kids, you quadrupled it. You throw eight kids in that mix, and I don't even know what the number is that you mathematicians will tell me, but it's a lot. A lot. <clears throat> and you need, you need to know, you already know this, but this is why this is so important, because kids are professional hypocrisy detectors. Aren't they? I mean, they're black and white. And they know when you've done something wrong. They know it. You're not hiding anything. You ever played this, move, this game called Settlers of Catan? One of our favorite games. Everybody in my house is competitive. All the way down to sweet little 12-year-old Willa. When she was five years old, Dad, we're playing Candyland. Dad, I'm going to put the smack down on you. Listen, you're not putting the smack down on anybody. I'm a grown man. I've never lost a Candyland in my life. So we're going at it when we play games. We're all one on one. Nobody's playing to lose. Everybody's playing to win. <clears throat> we're playing Settlers of Catan years ago, Georgia. 
<clears throat> have traded a wheat for an oil, something like that. And then I said, wait a minute, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And Georgia said, you have to. What do you mean I have to? It's a rule. Now, everybody knows in my house, if you start claiming it's a rule, I will get the rule book out. I will get the box top. I will get online. You're going to have to show me that rule. And the more complicated the game is, right, some of these games have like a three-inch rule book. So, fine, we're going to read every word of it till we find that rule. So, I start grabbing the box. She said, oh, no, no, it's not in there. Oh, I bet it's not. She said, it's a family rule. Oh, so you and the boys got together and came up with a family rule, and now you're springing it on me right here in the middle of the game? What is it? She said, well, it's our family rule that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, how about you're going to bed early? You like that? <laughs> so she was right. She was very respectful. But what happened? It got hung up in her grid. I was a hypocrite. I've been telling them, let your word be your word. Your yes be yes and no be no. And here I am going back on a simple trade of an ore for a wheat. So you get all that together. And then before you get into parenting at all, even now, what do you have to do? You got to prioritize the marriage. You got to prioritize the marriage. The marriage is the most important relationship in the home. It is more important than the father-son relationship. It is more important than the father-daughter relationship. It is more important than the mother-son relationship. It is more important than the mother-daughter relationship. It's more important than any relationship in that home. Adam and Eve, when God put those two together, they were a family without children. You're a family without children. People tell me all the time, we're going to start our family. I know what they mean. I don't get upset about it, but I do gently remind them, you already are one. Kids are just a welcome addition to the, well, hopefully a welcome addition. They're an addition to the family, hopefully a welcome addition to the family. But you already are one. When the Bible speaks in Ephesians 5 and explains a husband and wife relationship is a picture of Christ and the church and the gospel, kids aren't a part of that picture. It's that husband-wife relationship. It is a central relationship in that home. How does a young child know whether or not things are okay in the world? How does a four-year-old know? Watching the evening news? Reading the Wall Street Journal? No. The only way that a four- or five- or six-year-old knows or feels any sense of security that everything is all right in the world is whether or not they think things are okay between their parents. Fundamental, that's it. All the explanation in the world, reading them nursery rhymes, reading them Bible verses is great, but the way they measure whether or not things are okay in the world is whether or not they think things are okay in that marriage between the husband and wife. <clears throat> they need to see you Laughing together, smiling at the dinner table to each other, showing appropriate affection. I'll let you decide what that looks like. I'm a little more private than most people, but uh, hugging and kissing in front of my kids, I do it regularly. Why, why do you think? When my boys were little, they'd say, do it again, Dad. Do it again. First of all, I don't need any instruction from you. I know what to do. That's how your older three siblings got here. <clears throat> so, don't need any instruction. 
Our older kids, you know what they say? That's gross. Get a room. Get a room. Yeah, I, I know, I know they're, they're pretending like they think it's gross, but I'm telling you, it still brings warmth to their soul. When Dane and I go out, we tell the kid, call everybody in, say, we're going out. Where are we going? Oh, I didn't mean we, like, it's just we, just two of us. We're going out. And we're going to have fun. You know why? Why? Because you're not coming. <laughs> we had fun before you got here. We're having fun while you're here because I'm planning on having a lot of fun after you're gone. Now, do you think they all run upstairs and curl up in the fetal position? No. It brings rest to their soul. <clears throat> when I come home on an average day, I've done this, <clears throat> well, for 21 years. I come in the house and I greet Dana first, hands down, never do it any different. I do it every time the same way. I greet her first. And even now, my younger kids, even they're outside, I drive up, and they run over, Dad, Dad, no. Get out of the way. I don't, don't talk to, move, move. Where's your mother? I want you to just ask yourself this question. Why would those kids subject themselves to that kind of rejection every single day because it brings rest to their soul. I know so many parents that dote over their children at the expense of the marriage. It doesn't work. You make your kids insecure. You don't make them secure by doing that. You make them insecure. Because they wonder in their soul, and they're not sophisticated enough, as you know, to, to even say it. Hey, the reason why I decided to declare World War III today is because I'm feeling disrupted in my soul. I haven't seen you guys interact positively, and something's not right, and if something's not right, uh, my whole world is shattered. And I'm just going to act out, because I don't know how to, to do this, because I don't have any sophistication. None of that's going to happen. You just have to know it. First thing you ought to ask yourself, if you do have one of those moments where everything seems fine for a few days and all of a sudden they wake up and it's as if they decided to declare World War III, you ought to ask yourself regularly, have they seen us interacting positively together? Do they see joy in our relationship? And if they don't and there's no joy in it, that's not horrible. It'd be horrible if there's no joy in it and you don't, Talk to somebody about it. But if there's no joy in it, and that can happen, that can happen. But don't let it keep going and have it continue to impact your children in such a way that it just could have been avoided. Don't be too proud to, to talk to somebody, to get somebody involved. Do you realize <clears throat> that businesses collectively around the world spend billions and billions of dollars on what they call consultants. And businesses will identify areas that they're not strong in, and then they'll hire somebody to come in and evaluate. So people do this every day. Some of you men in here have had to write the checks for that at some point. So everybody does this. It's not embarrassing to the company to recognize they don't really have a handle on how to do their payroll very well. It's not embarrassing. It's embarrassing to a company to go bankrupt because they didn't know how to do their payroll very well and didn't get anybody to help them with their payroll. 
Don't be embarrassed. Men in particular, I want to tell you, do not be embarrassed. You wouldn't be embarrassed in your business. You wouldn't be embarrassed in some other venue that you're just getting help. I get help all the time. There's certain things I don't know how to do on my own. I call up a guy that knows how to do it. I've got plumber friends. I've got electrician friends. I'm not embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. You're not a relationship expert. You're not an expert at most things, like I'm not an expert in most things. Get help. Now, my challenge is to figure out how to tie finances and all that. So here's what I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> you're not going to parent in a gospel-centered way without having the spiritual foundation that I just laid. And that if you're not leading spiritually, you're, you're going to be making all sorts of poor decisions. And you're not going to have a mutual agreement on what the priorities are in this home anyway. If the priority is the gospel, and then the priority is to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and have the gospel the centerpiece in all of it, and if we're going to live our lives authentically for the gospel in front of them, including warts and all, sin and forgiveness of sin and apologies and keeping our word, Well, your finances are going to be directly impacted. The way, you, the way you decide how to spend your money, what you think is priority, what you think is good for the kids, right? So if we're talking about this in terms of parenting, some of you, I don't know who, probably spending way too much money on your kids or on the wrong stuff. They probably don't need a third of what they have. We finally taught my parents when they were giving them Christmas gifts, we said, look, this is ridiculous. We got, we're, you realize we're throwing these things out like three months after you give them to us, right? I'm sorry. That's the truth. We don't have, we don't have enough space. We're going to get a storage unit, which I'm not going to do. So it's garbage or goodwill. We don't need all that. We just don't. <clears throat> so you're a steward. I'm just going to say blanket. You're all too busy. You're all too busy. Now you say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I, well, I got to say, I, <laughs> I might know a little bit about being busy. <clears throat> we made decisions in our family several years ago. We got caught up in the whole sports thing, and I love sports. Sports is a fundamental tool of discipleship in our home, but we got way out of control. Spending thousands of dollars, thousands so I sat down with my three oldest. I'm going to try to tie this into something financial and then we'll be done. <clears throat> it is financial. And I, I called my wife. I was at a baseball tournament with one of my sons and several of the kids. She was at another one in another city with my other son, several of our other kids. And I called her up. I said, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. This can't be right. Do you know how much money we just spent in the last nine days alone? So at the time, <clears throat> the only kids that were old enough to really do this were my oldest three. I pulled them together and I said, I want you to write down 10 things that you want to do before you leave this house. 10 things. Mission trip you want to take, a site you want to see, we hunt and fish, animal you want to kill. Just list it out there. What do you want? What do you want to do? They took a couple days. I got the list. 
It was actually heartwarming. They had some really good stuff on there. Fisher, who was about 13 at the time, said he wanted to kill a lion. I respect that. Don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but he didn't put on there he wanted to hug a bunny rabbit, right? I mean, his kids want to kill a lion, all right? So that's heartwarming. Don't want to buy a kitten. You know what I had to tell him? We're not going to do any of this. We're not going to be able to do any of it. Why not? Because almost all of our discretionary time is spent with baseball, and most of our discretionary money, to be honest with you, is baseball, because it's not just lessons and equipment, it's tournaments and hotels, you know, meals, some of you <clears throat> gotten into it. So I said, how about if we take a year and a half off? What if we took a year and a half off of baseball? And we took all the money we we're going to spend on all that, and we did it. We go on a couple of mission trips, do some other things we've been wanting to do. And they said, let's do it. Well, I hesitated, to be honest with you, because I was hoping they would push back really hard. Then I'd go to Dana and say, hey, I don't want to hurt the kids, you know. And all that. No, they were all in. So then I had to deal with it. Because i got to tell you, I'm getting something out of it myself. Because they're both incredible athletes. And when somebody's at the baseball park and uh, says, hey, how did you learn how to hit like that? And they say, my dad? I'm sorry, I don't have time to analyze myself on a couch somewhere, but I'm getting something out of it, and it's probably not good. <clears throat> so we, took, we did it. We took off. You know what we did? We ended up, and I would never do this again because it nearly killed me, but we ended up in Africa, Central America, Haiti, Korea, Ukraine. It changed our life. Because I had a friend of mine tell me. He said, you're in charge of your own schedule. And I said, you know what? You say that because your kid's not an athlete and he doesn't know how to play anything. Now, I, came, I, I shouldn't have said that. So don't, that's not, don't take that away as the key to the teaching tonight. I shouldn't have said that. But I will say this. He was right. That's why I was mad. I knew he was right. He was right. And so we took a year and a half off. And it changed our life. So just maybe. Because I told the kids, look, I'm not going go to the, go to get a job at a convenience store just to make a little extra money so we can go do some of this. I mean, God's given us an amount of money. I'm not working one more minute than I'm working right now. Uh, I think we're being poor stewards of what he's given us. And it all centered on a mutual understanding between my wife and I, what we were trying to do with these children. I had one of the guys on Gunner's baseball team. He said, aren't you worried you're going to rob Gunner of an experience? And I said, I am petrified that I'm going to rob him of an experience. Just not the one you're thinking. You're thinking that I might rob him of an experience playing on a Division I baseball team going to the College World Series. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried he's going to grow up and think baseball is the only thing there is. He's going to view the whole world through the lens of baseball when there's a whole world out there. So you don't have to do all that in one year. That's in fact, I advise you not to. And you don't necessarily have to go out of the country. There are places all over this country in the United States that have pockets of people that from internationals where you can learn other cultures. You can, you can help people understand the gospel. There, there are mission opportunities all around us. 
So spiritual leadership is a stewardship. Financial leadership is a stewardship, and they both go together. And especially in the parenting process. How you, how you steward your finances and how you deploy them to help your children understand the gospel, understand the need for the gospel to go all around the world. I don't think all my kids need to be missionaries in the sense that we might understand missionaries. I want all of my kids to go out somewhere and be uh, great commission satellites everywhere. My daughter, when she was, my oldest daughter, when she was 13, and we'll finish, she said, Daddy, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if when I get married that me and my husband live two doors down? Wouldn't that be great? I said, Georgia, what I'm about to tell you is against the law, but if I found out you were going to be with your husband two doors down, I would buy the house out from under you and then burn it right to the ground. I got this neighborhood covered, all right? Number one, I'm going to have a hard enough time staying out of his business already. You park him two doors down, that guy's finished, all right? So don't even do that to him or me. But what I said is, go do something for God. Go somewhere. I'll find you. I know how to get on a plane. I've been doing it my whole adult life. I know how to get on a plane, stay in a hotel, because I'm not staying with you guys. I don't want to get that close to everything. I'll stay in a hotel, and we'll see each other, and I'll find you. Go do something somewhere for God. That's what you want for your children. That's what you want. The Bible says that your children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Now, that's good news. Because if you've ever bow hunted, and even if you haven't, you can imagine, if you've ever bow hunted, you never go out there with your bow and an arrow that you never even fired. You fired that arrow 100, 200, 300 times. You pretty much know exactly where that thing's going. When that passage was written, the, the arrow's in the hand of a warrior. I'm not worried the deer's coming after me. So my life is not at stake if I miss the deer. A warrior, his life's at stake if he misses his, his opponent. So he really knew where that arrow was going. And you know how he knew? He made that arrow himself. He shaped it himself. And he fired it and fired it. And that's what we have with parenting. One thing I want you to leave with is, no, I don't want you to leave here with the heaps of coals of guilt on you. You should be encouraged that in parenting, you get thousands of test flights before they ultimately launch. Every baseball practice, every every activity that they do. Every time you observe them, every time you hear, hear what happened in the nursery, hear what happened in first grade, second grade, Sunday school, all of that. These are just test flights. You go out, they come back, and you reshape the arrow. They go out, they come back, you reshape the arrow. You get thousands of opportunities. Ultimately, there's one big opportunity, but you have thousands of opportunities. So that's why it's a stewardship, and that's why don't grow weary. Don't be faint-hearted. But you got to make sure that you're living out the gospel authentically in your home or all of your work will be for naught. All right, I went late, but I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. Thankful for the men and women that are here. Pray that you would give us courage in our parenting. 
Help us to be faithful men and women of God who are living out the gospel authentically and are faithfully imparting those truths to our children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Stinson. We're going to dismiss in just a second. There are a couple of things that we need to adjust. We're going to take our transitions down from 15 minutes to five minutes. So in five minutes from right now is when our teachers will begin teaching their breakout sessions, and they're going to go ahead and take their 30 minutes of time and teach those. And then there is a room change. We have... Bob St. John is going to be in the room to my right, right back here. If you go out this door right here, there's one door there. It's a set of double doors. He's going to be in there. And tomorrow, Ryan Limbaugh is going to be in here. Ryan is not here tonight. He is leading that those sessions only tomorrow on a ra- rearing adopted children. But Bob St. John will be right over here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you. Everything on number 205 and above is going to be, there's stairs here and there's stairs directly behind me. Ask a host or one of our people and they'll help you get to wherever it is that you need to be. Thank you very much.